Welcome to the 343 Ministries podcast, where we want to help you be the church right where you are. Whether at work or at home or with your friends or your families, we want to give you practical strategies that can help you build your communities in Christ wherever you are in life right now. So let's get started. Welcome back to the 343 Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Todd Baker. The new year is the perfect time for a reset in your spiritual life, isn't it? This special two-part podcast has some practical ways that we can all get a head start on growing more in our spiritual lives in 2023. We hope you had a Merry Christmas, and here's to a great new year ahead. And now here's part two of how to jump the New Year's speed bump. Thinking about the physics lesson that you remember from high school, the, the formula for momentum is this. Momentum is equal to the product of the mass and velocity of a body in motion. But really, momentum is this idea that all moving bodies, and this is from Isaac Newton, all moving bodies will continue to be in a state of rest or motion unless they are interfered with by some external and so we know this from life, but the more momentum an object has, the harder it is to stop. So we see that in sports. Uh, we see that really what we're trying to talk about here is that in life, if we have enough momentum in a direction, it's difficult to stop us from going in that direction. And so the point of this series is this, Sophie, that we would want God's momentum guiding us down the right path. So the point of this entire series is, is that idea that we really, that we would get to a place where we want the momentum of God and the things of God to drive us in a particular direction towards the right thing in our life versus the world's momentum, which tends to drive us down another path. It takes us really down the wrong paths in many so, so that's a snapshot of where we're going today. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. So if you want to turn there in your, in your Bibles, is Matthew chapter 5. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. So if you get too far to the right, just turn around. Uh, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And here's the, here's the hopeful thing is that as we think about momentum, if God is our momentum, if that's really our goal in life, and that's what we find out, then I think there's two things that that, that we're going to grow, we're going to mature, and we're going to prosper. Uh, I like incentives, so that's, that's why I'm throwing that out to you, is that if, if, if we follow in God's path of momentum, we're going to grow, mature, and prosper, and, and we're also going to bring Him glory, honor, and praise. And so those are two things that you can think about as to why you would want God's momentum. So in, in Matthew 5, we're going to be looking at verse, starting verse 17 this morning, and this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to, he just finished last week, we looked at the Beatitudes, or two weeks ago. We looked at the Beatitudes. And what the Beatitudes do is, is they capture what it looks like to be righteous. To be someone who is humble and dependent on God. Someone, as you know, righteousness is actually comes from faith. We don't earn our salvation. We actually accepted from God in the sense that He gives us and makes us righteous when we have faith in Him. 
And that's a truth that stands in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. If you remember in the Old Testament, how could you be saved before Jesus came along? You could be saved. Abraham was saved. He was credited righteousness because he believed in God. And so faith is that thing that, that, that helps us and, and leads us to a place of right standing or righteousness in God. And so Jesus summed that up, this idea of the Beatitudes, in the first few verses of chapter 5. And he finishes and he says that his followers would look like this. And if you look, like, if you look humble and dependent on God, then you would be salt in the world. And like salt... We, or disciples of God, have an opportunity to be different in the world and to make a positive difference in the world. And so salt, you know, enhances the flavor of food and it changes the environment that it's in. And so Jesus was using a metaphor to say, if you're being led by God's momentum, then that's, what, that's who you're going to be in the world. And you can start to see that. And, and God is going to use you to change the world the way he wants it to be changed. And then he switches gears, and that's where we are in verse 17 here. He switches gears from the Beatitudes, and he's talking to the disciples uh, who believed in him and who were following him, and he takes, a, he takes a little bit of time here to spend some time warning them not to follow a certain path that would lead them away from God, and it's, it's this idea of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. And say, so I, I have a little, at least, thought that Beginning of your handouts, this is your first little film blank. Is that self righteousness has the greatest amount of momentum towards darkness? Self righteousness has the greatest amount of momentum towards darkness. Now, the definition of righteousness that I found is this I think it's pretty simple the character and conduct that conforms to the will of God, not the will of self. Character and conduct that conforms to the will of God and not the will of self. So, so thinking about that, self-righteousness versus righteousness. What does that look like? And Jesus is going to say, I gave you an example of all these ways that you could learn uh, to be righteous, to be humble and dependent on God. And now I'm going to show you how that kind of plays out in real life. So, so he, what he does is in, in the Old Testament, there was a particular interpretation that the leaders had. And they were telling people, this is the way that you have a relationship with God. You do these things, and then you have a relationship with God. It really had very little to do with whether they believed in Him or not, or followed Him, or did things the, the way um, that Jesus would talk about. And so they would begin to start saying, He's not really teaching based on the Old Testament. And Jesus starts off, basically defending his interpretation of the Old Testament. So in, in verse 17 he says this, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And that was the summation of the entire Old Testament. I have not come to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. So his point was not contradicting God's law. I know there's some of you in this audience uh, in the first century that, that think that I am but I'm trying to clarify some things for you because you've missed the interpretation, the intention of what God intended when he gave these laws. <clears throat> Skip down to verse 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the experts in the law and the Pharisees, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And to that, all the people were like, no! Because, why? Because they thought that the Pharisees and the experts in the law were the people to look to. And if they weren't getting into heaven, then how in the world were average, normal, everyday people going to get into heaven? And so the, the, this idea of fake it till you make it was what the Pharisees were doing. They were, they were just complete hypocrites. And Jesus called them out not only here, but at many other times. And so in this whole section, he begins to call out people who are hypocritical about anything. And he says, he says um, that, that unless your righteousness goes, what goes far beyond that, then, then you're not going to enter heaven. And this idea of spiritual life is not simply an external thing. But it's an internal motivation of the heart is where Jesus is going to cut to the chase. He says it's not about what you look like. It's about what's happening inside of who you believe in. <clears throat> and so some of these ideas as we walk through this, you're going to naturally have some pushback. Um, so I'm going to give you permission to do that this morning. Because Jesus said some things all throughout the Gospels that often it's difficult to understand. It's difficult to say that's exactly what he was trying to say for me at this moment in time. Um, but I think that as we as we think about his words and how they might apply to our life or just to life in general, um, hopefully we'll be able to understand what he's trying to say and how that applies to us. And so I, I'm just preparing you because some of these are you're definitely going to go. I don't know about that. And so. Um, the first one starts in verse 21. <clears throat> verse 21 says this, You have heard that it was said, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subjected to judgment. And you go, okay, I got that. I haven't murdered anybody. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with someone will be subjected to judgment. Same language for murder. So in other words, that's your first fill in the blank is that anger equals Murder and the people were like, "What? Are you kidding? Anger? If I just get angry at someone, then I murdered them? That's that's crazy." And then he and then he says, "And whoever insults someone will be brought before the council, and whoever says fool will be sent to fiery hell. Fiery hell is Gehenna, which was this big pit of trash that they burned right outside Jerusalem. So it's a visual image of." You're going to burn uh, for that, you know, and you go, wait a minute, just because I'm angry, you're saying that I'm murdering someone, that those are equal, and he's saying, in God's eyes, they are equal, and, and I say it this way, is that when God gave this command in the Old Testament not to murder, he wanted his people to refrain from hatred that leads to murder. And so when Jesus said, when you're angry, you feel hatred in your heart. And that's what leads someone who has committed murder to do that act. And so in that sense, when you're angry, you have done the act in God's eyes. So his will is that we would not hate people. Don't hate people and don't make people hate you. <laughs> that's really kind of what he's saying. Um, and you don't even have to physically murder someone to be guilty of that crime. And everyone goes, and your phone like is this, is that angry thoughts condemn us and increase our momentum toward darkness. Angry thoughts 
and demos and increase our momentum toward darkness. And really what Jesus is trying to say here again is that he's exposing those who are self-righteous who said, well, I didn't murder anybody, so I'm good. Um, he's saying if you're angry, you need a Savior. If you're angry, then you need a Savior. Verse 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. And the crowd goes, cool, I'm good with that. And he says, But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And they go, What? Are you kidding? I mean, I haven't done that. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I look at attractive women or I look at attractive men, but I haven't committed adultery. What are you talking about? And Jesus is saying, Well, in God's eyes, you do that, you have this lust-filled desire for someone, then you have. It's, and it's this, it's this idea that when God gave this command, he said, don't commit adultery, his will was that people would refrain not just from the act, but from lust-filled things in their minds that would lead them to commit adultery. And you see how the, the, the momentum towards a particular path will lead you to darkness. We know people in our culture and the community that, that that's what has happened to them. And Jesus was saying, look, I know some of you Pharisees have probably done this. And, and you think you think that just by looking at someone you haven't, you haven't committed any crime against God. But he's saying, wait a minute, they're actually equal. So your fill the blank here is that lust-filled desires equal adultery. And we're like, right, push back. And the, the, the phrase I came up with was this, was lust-filled thoughts condemn us. Yeah. And it's the same idea. They increase our momentum toward darkness. And so what do we do? Don't lust after people and don't make people lust after you. Um, and Jesus' point again was this, if you lust, if there's a, if there's a moment in time where you, where you have or, 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 or will, then you need a Savior. Verse 31 says this, and, and these two are sort of connected because they both have to do with adultery. It was said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a legal document. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And you say, what? <laughs> uh, because, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. 50% of our country uh, is divorced, 51, I think, maybe, percent now. So this one probably comes close to home. You know, I mean, I come from a divorced family. Um, and so, how, how do you look at that? How do you read that? And, and if you look at the first sentence where, where the, the law was that God was allowing uh, his people to file for divorce with a legal document. And so his will actually, even though God allowed that and said, this is, this is what I'm allowing for, his will was not for people to get divorced. It was to, it was to help marriages stay together. And when you think of, of, of God's will in life, what he wants for his people is not for them to have to go through the destruction and brokenness of what divorce is. And so, 
What happened was the flippancy of divorce, at least in the first century, was rampant. And in a lot of ways, the leaders of Israel were doing this. They would just say, come home and say, I want a divorce. They'd write it out, hand it to their wife, and they divorce them. With, with no, no recourse. And, and in the first century, it was a very male-centered society. Women were often looked upon as equal to slaves. And so when a man would, would divorce his wife, he would almost force her to remarry because she couldn't often provide for herself. And so what Jesus is saying is that you think the simple act of writing, I divorce you, like in Seinfeld. You want a divorce? You got one. You know, it's that, it's that idea of, uh, look, if, if, if this is what I want, so, so go. She, she would be destitute and forced to marry someone. So Jesus is saying, if you're doing that, you're actually forcing her to commit adultery. And you go, I didn't realize that. <laughs> At least in God's eyes, that's what we're saying. In God's eyes, um, Jesus was now extending divorce in cases of immorality. He was saying, that now, if it's an immoral situation, I'm even adding to that to say, you have to, you could do a written document and say you're going to divorce and, and situation, then you could get a divorce, but other than that, divorce has adultery at its heart, and, and this, this is a little fun of mine. Flippant divorce equals adultery, and, and the, the phrase I have here is, a flippant perspective on marriage condemns us. A flippant perspective on marriage condemns us, and it increases again our momentum. Darkness. And so if you're flippantly divorced, or at least that's what he's saying to these people in the crowd, then you need to say. Verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said, don't break an oath, but fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, don't take oaths at all, not by heaven, because it's the throne of God, not by earth, because it's his footstool, not by Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king. Let your word be yes, yes or no. No, and he means they're simply yes or simply no. Any more than this is from the evil one. And what he's, what he's explaining here is that God's will is that his people would refrain from over-promising and over-committing. And therefore, if they did those things, then they would be seen as people who break their commitments and break their promises if they didn't fulfill them. You know, some people say, I swear on my mother's grave that I will totally show up to coffee today. And then they don't show up. And then they don't call. And you go, they lied to me. Right? That person lied to me and they broke the commitment they said they were going to make. But all the time people say, I swear I'll do that, honey. I swear. I'm, I'm, I got caught uh, when, when I uh, told my wife I would not get up on a roof and work on a roof. Uh, because she was afraid that I would fall, you know, and break my neck. And uh, she cares about me, so she said, please don't get on the roof, you know, unless it's a dire situation where you have to save a child or something like that, uh, don't, don't get up on the roof. And I said, I promise I won't get on the roof. And that day, I got on the roof. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I mean, I'm standing up here telling you, know, explaining it for you to not break your commitments and promises, and I've done that. 
And so I need a savior, apparently. But it's the idea that, that that's what we do, don't we? We, we don't need to. I, I wasn't maliciously saying, no, honey, I promise, but I'm getting on the roof. You know, it was the idea that, that we say it flippantly, honestly, and say, I swear I'll show up. And, and he was saying that promise breakers equal liars. Promise breakers equal liars. Broken promises condemn us. Broken promises condemn us. So if you're a liar, even a little liar, you need to say it. I love this one. Verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evildoer. But whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other to him as well. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, which was your undergarments, if they want your underwear, they, they're going to they're gonna take it. Um, give him your cloak or your coat also. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and do not reject the one who borrows from you. It was God's will that his people would never seek retaliation. Originally, God's will was that his people would never seek vengeance or retaliation. Instead, it was to love one another. And to put other people's interests ahead of their own. Leviticus 19.18 says this. You must not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the children of your people. But you must love your neighbor as yourself. But in the same way that God had permitted divorce to happen, he also permitted an amount of retaliation in, in the eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It wasn't his will. So neither divorce nor retaliation were his will, but he, he knew that he knew he needed to add, I guess, a little bit of an exception to say, here's, here's the amount that you're allowed to do. But instead, Jesus says resist. Resist means to defend oneself. And here he says, don't defend yourself with an evildoer. Accept the injustice without taking revenge. Just accept it. Jesus, Jesus says that and we go, huh? I'm not supposed to do anything? And, and what happens is if we actually do that, this is what he was getting at, if we actually do that, that kind of response shows that you trust that God will faithfully care for you no matter what happens. So that kind of trust is what Jesus was saying. That's, that's who you need to be. That's who you need to be. Deuteronomy 32, 35 says, I will get revenge, and this is the Lord speaking, I will get revenge and pay them back at the time their foot slips. For the day of their disaster is near, and the impending judgment is rushing upon them. The people that are evil and do evil things to you, God will take care of. And we have to faithfully trust that they will take care of them. He will avenge you. So vengeance seekers equal evil hearts. People who seek vengeance actually have evil 
in your heart. And vengeance seeking apparently condemns us as well. So if there's ever been a time where you've thought about seeking vengeance or you have, then you need a savior. That's what he said. Verse 43. This is the last one. Verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like your father in heaven. And you say, what? Love my enemy. God's will is this. It's that you would hate no one and you would pray for everyone. God's will is that you would hate no one and you would pray for everyone. And if you do that, you will become like your Father who is in heaven. He's saying this. Enemy haters equal those who don't know God. Enemy haters equal those who don't know God. And hate condemns us. And it drives us to this place of darkness in our lives. So if you've ever hated anyone, even for a minute, then you need a Savior. And then everybody in the audience said, Ah, what do I do? What do I do? I'm kind of trapped. Because in, in, in explaining these commandments, Jesus sort of just took the bar and just raised it to this unattainable place. And we're going, well, if you said we couldn't get in because we're not like these guys, and now you just raised their level of behavior to this, this like ridiculous height, how are we supposed to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus finished and he says, so then, be perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. <laughs> and, and you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. And, and, and I think it's this, is that Jesus knows that perfection is unattainable. Even for those of you who struggle with perfectionism, I'm just going to free you today. It is unattainable. You, you cannot be perfect. You cannot do everything perfectly. And so Jesus grabs this heavy clanging door and he slams it shut. And he says... Anybody that thinks they can earn their way into heaven is off base. Anybody who thinks that their self-righteous life is what God wants for them is off base. God actually wants you and I to trust in His perfect Son who lived the perfect life, who died the perfect death, and that that just believing in Him gives us entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So it's about faith. And Jesus, this is one of your last moments. Jesus accepts you wherever you are and gives you momentum toward God. Jesus accepts you wherever you are and gives you momentum. You hear it all the time, but the condition for entering the kingdom of God is by faith alone, in God's grace alone, in Christ alone. And Jesus has just made every person who is self-righteous in that audience take a step back and say, either I'm going to keep going down my path into the darkness, or I need a Savior, because I can't save myself. So, what can you do this week? What can you do? Three things to think about here. Recognize that there is a momentum in this world that wants to lead you into darkness. I think we're deceived often by that. Recognize 
that there is a momentum in this world that wants to lead you into darkness. Number two, so ask God to be your momentum to guide you in paths of righteousness. Ask God to be your momentum to guide you to paths of righteousness. And number three, this is just one, I kind of want to encourage us through this series to look back at what's being said here. What is Jesus saying? Read back through these verses and think about what you struggle with in your relationships with other people specifically and take those ideas, whether it's that you're angry all the time, whether it's that you feel vengeance towards someone, um, whether it's that you've had this struggle with understanding um, lust, whatever it is, take those things and bring them to God and say, give me understanding and wisdom here. Thanks for listening to the 343 Ministries podcast. As always, we encourage you to donate to our ministry at 343ministries.com slash give. Together, we can all make a difference in this world. 343 Ministries, Inc. is a registered 501c3 nonprofit organization. Also, subscribe to our monthly devotional email for actionable strategies on how you can build up your community in Christ right where you are. For more ideas, inspiration, and tips, follow us on Instagram at Todd and Meredith Baker.